There's no easy games at this level, Brian. But the most difficult opponent is the hegemonic notion of homogenizing objectivity rampant throughout football. We want Bootsy. This is Deep Player. Even at its most sparkling, football would be nigh on unwatchable without the experience of sociality that it engenders. But the rationalisation it undergoes on the tactics blogs seems to indicate a process whereby the action of the match comes to be regarded as separable from its social extensions. Again, this is not Wilson's fault as such, yet this approach not only enacts a sceptical blanking of football's political spectre, but more or less serves an ascetic denial of its vast effective potential. Reading the scrutinising prose of the tactical hipster, one could come to think that nobody has ever sung a song, waved a banner, set off a flare, laughed or cried in a stadium, ever. This is Deep Play, and those weren't my words, but the words of my co-host. I'm Robert Malloy Vaughan, and I'm with Joe Kennedy, Hello Robert, and today I feel like James Richardson sitting outside a cafe in Ankener or Lecce or one of those towns you used to go to in the early days of the Gazetta programme, uh, except we're sitting in a yard in Nunhead in the bowels of the housing crisis the with the cats and the early falling apples, it's almost like the wicker man. And today we're going to be talking about an issue which is quite close to my heart in well, it's quite close to the, the annoyable part of my heart, but today we're going to be talking about tactics and um, their relationship to a certain way of thinking about the game in the 21st century. Um, so, uh, you've written a number of things and you are, you are writing about this subject. Um, you are critical of the, um, the effect of the current fashion for so-called tactical analysis uh, has on football? Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm critical of it from a background, I think, of having initially been quite interested in it, and I think it might be useful to, to frame what we mean by talking about the tactics bloggers and tactical hipsters, although I'm a little wary about the use of the term hipster, as, as we've discussed before. Um, it would be quite interesting to, to think about where that was coming from and, and what it's related to in the field of actual professional football. Um, so, where where did you first begin to notice this phenomenon? Um, the phenomenon of tactics being acknowledged um, on a level beyond the sort of bullshit on television, mm. the the drawn on arrows and the have a gamble son. Um, <laughs> quite recently. Um, uh, a very boring Liverpool fan talking to me in a park at someone's birthday drinks um, about how wonderful inverting the pyramid was. <laughs> um, so that would have been 2009. Well, I have um, I have a number of good good friends who are very um, committed fans of Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about the effect of that book in, in a little while. Um, so I, I have to be careful here because they're not inherently boring people, but I do disagree quite uh, in increasingly vehemently with their their uh, kind of um, valorisation of that book. But it certainly seemed to me that it was in the uh, latter half of last decade that there was this explosion in a, a specifically tactical form of commentary that came about because of the journalism of, of Jonathan Wilson, who is a, a journalist for The Guardian often and a number of other other outlets, a, a freelance writer who has historically specialised in writing about football in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, who's a, a journalist who I do have a lot of time for and I think does know the, the game very well. And yet I think that his writing has maybe had a slightly negative impact in, in some respects. But yeah, it was around... Um, it, it was probably around 2005, 2006 that you began to see this shift because the whole time I've been um, I've been watching football, which is 23 years now, there has been this, I suppose, joke or cliche about men 
and it's always men in the joke sitting in the pub moving around pint pots and, and salt and pepper pots to indicate you know the difference between a 4-4-2 and a 5-3-2 um, and that was kind of particularly accentuated in the mid 90s I don't know if you remember when there was all this all this buzz about Liverpool playing five defenders or, or, or three centre-halves and wing-backs and then England taking on the formation and Terry Venable's famous Christmas tree but nobody there was no kind of overthinking of it it, it had a it had a place in the game which was kind of commensurate equal with other other aspects it, it was not not elevated in the same way as it has been recently but around 2005 you started to see people kind of who'd, who'd been reading the tactical journalism I think that Wilson was writing about tactics in the Guardian from say 2005 2006 on although inverting the pyramid wasn't out that out then 2008 it came out in 2008 but but he had been writing on on tactics for the Guardian for a while before that and we started to the questions became increasingly nitpicky the questions that were being addressed like um you know this constant uh desire to find the next big thing in in tactics and the notion of the strikerless team which which led by around the time of Euro 2008 I think to the the idea of the false nine this kind of utopian player who um, is a striker but isn't a striker kind of lurks hides hides somewhere else um, has a kind of Nietzschean heroism in his uh, in his ability to kind of break the break the system as it were but it's an utterly systematized breaking of the system uh, so it, it was around then, and then since then, this tactical discussion has proliferated massively, and there are now vast numbers of, of blogs, um, sometimes written by paid football writers and sometimes by unpaid, which which cover the minutiae of, of tactics, and sometimes these are the most joyless, um, de-energised spaces on the internet for me, almost. Um, it's almost one of the, for me, one of the, the least kind of. Um, powerful or interesting things about about um, contemporary football culture, but it's got this kind of negative interest, which is what I want to sort of uh, try and understand and think through today. Yeah. There's a, I know exactly what you mean. There's a brilliant example of this on the Zonal Marking blog, which is a sort of tactical review of the um, sort of end of season um, title decider uh, in Portugal. With which includes, brilliantly, a video without commentary, just the sound of the crowd, the drama of the late win, uh, the emotion, people falling to their knees, um, and the manager at one point looks like he's going to faint with just sheer shock and joy. And it opens with a line along the... Or it con the conclusion starts with a line, something along the lines of, a dramatic game, but tactically very... Uninteresting, <laughs> something along those lines. Um, and I just thought this poor bastard must have been lobotomized. It, he's to to be that disinterested in human emotion. It struck me as a very different kind of football fandom. Mm. And and you wonder where where it leads. I mean, this is where I kind of have to put my cards on the table and, and say that this uh, I have an inbuilt tendency to consider football in different terms to how I consider um, various various forms of art. You know, I, I understand to a degree the dispassionate analysis of music or literature or, or painting. I understand why you would have this way way of looking at it which attempts to understand it entirely by its internal elements. But I, I believe that you can talk ab about the kind of purely internal elements of an artwork I believe an artwork can have that autonomy whereas I don't think that a football match can have that autonomy I don't think a football match can be analysed in the same way as one might analyse a, a kind of serialist composition. Is that because those of us who are interested in football are part of the work of art? Yeah that, that's that's exactly it, I mean if, you, if we want to extend that analogy and it's unavoidable that we do really, I think that we, we it's an essential Way that one must understand football that that it it cannot be delimited in that way that it's it's a a completely um, a non-alter yeah you can you, yeah I don't think you can start bringing in a kind of auteur theory for example into into um, football and I think that sometimes that that's what the tactics bloggers are trying to do turn turn certain managers into the equivalent of the 1960s um, 
French cinematic auteur, the person who is making it all happen. The football matches are kind of completely directed, um, aesthetically perfect mise-en-scene. I mean, part of the problem with that is you've always got two two teams on the pitch anyway, beyond we beyond the kind of contingencies, beyond that kind of real that you have to start considering when you look at the fans, the weather, the stadium, the political conditions, the kind of material conditions. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I can't really expound a full full kind of materialist theory of the autonomous artwork here, but um, but I do think I have to qualify that whatever anyone listening is going to think about this I do see the football match and, and the artwork is something which you can't compare in the way that I think is implicit in the tactics blogging that, that we see so there's already I think in it a kind of unwillingness to see the full social extension so a full network of social extensions that football must lay claim to if people are going to understand it properly well I think um, football uh, as a social relationship has been gradually more and more ignored over a certain period of time, uh, first years, say, mm-hmm. um, in in place of the social experience, there's now this uh, notion that efficiency is all important. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And you see this in terms of the f- mass financial doping that goes on in football. Um, you know, uh, you've got this sort of wishy-washy... Yeah, it's not the winning, but the taking part that counts, which is often used as a kind of like, you know, as a stick to beat you with to make you well behaved. But I think what it should mean is, it's you know, you can you can kick and scream when you don't win. That's the point. But it's also the point to not win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I, I, yeah. Well, I, I fully agree. So with taking being, part yeah. and screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Counts. I mean, you know, and and you know, what do, what does a screaming mean? If we understand that the the screaming is something which is contained within a kind of lifetime's ex- experience of being a football fan, then it means something very different to to the. Uh, I suppose there are the staged melodrama of of the fan who can't believe that their team didn't win their the game, the cup final, the league, you know, this this whole idea that not winning the Premier League, um, not qualifying for the uh, for the Champions League is somehow the end of the world. I mean, we, we know it isn't. It's a, actually, you know, as a, a football fan... Well, it's, fan, kind, of it's, be, it's the, kind of been made the end of the world by the um, financial ramifications. Yeah. Um, which boosts the need for efficiency, doesn't yeah. it? Which is, which it's is, a vicious circle. Mm, yeah, so there is a, a vicious circle. Now, my, my problem is, if we had, I think, the kind of football that we had 30 years ago, the, the kind of um, social understanding of football that we had 30 years ago, I would be less bothered by the tactical discussion. Yeah. I might even be tempted to take part in it a bit more myself. I mean, it's not that I don't take any interest in what is in where no. players are being put on the pitch and both you and no. I have had a, enough time with Championship Manager in our lives to, to have things to say about that. <laughs> well, I'm, um, I, I managed to watch... I've managed to watch Dalek Hamlet for several seasons without actually knowing what formation they're playing. Mm. So, I mean, I, I can say this man isn't hasn't just got to be in his bonnet. He, he is interested in tactics but thinks it's gone too far. Well, I, I think it's w- what it's doing and I think that it aids... And I'm... Um, I will generously say it aids unknowingly the the kind of social abstraction of football. It's this, it's the football being kind of abstracted from its social context. And I think that when people insist that you can think about it purely in terms of these um, uh, kind of aesthetic decisions, almost as to where to put people on the pitch, how to make your players perform during the ninety minutes of the game, I think that 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 aids that abstra- abstraction. I think that that. Um, they they know what not what they do if you see what I mean, um, and you know we use this term in every episode, but there is a kind of useful idiocy going on there. If people are, are saying, well, you know, I can suspend my interest in the social economic ramifications of what's going on in football at the moment because I'm going to be interested instead in whether you know in in you know what how how I define Lionel Messi's role in a given match, I think that you're saying effectively that you don't care. Um, that, that the social aspect is is becoming irrelevant to you. Mm. Um, it, it, it does strike me as an atomised um, form of football consumption. I mean, there are ways of communication. There's Twitter and comments and blog posts and stuff, and the the smug smirk of knowing you've invented the mm. the troika position before <laughs> anyone else, or the the false ass dropping deep. Um, <laughs> But 
it is an atomization of the social football experience. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. It's people watching on television, largely. Uh, I mean, actually, talking about television, there's an interesting thing that Wilson uh, mentions that Arrigo Saki yeah. um, used to watch games on television as a kid and want to stick his head in the television <laughs> to be able to see the whole pitch. Um, and so the fact that um, sort of tactical fetishism is um, stepping into perhaps the void of people not being able to go to a game mm-hmm. uh, has this sort of like logical contradiction <clears throat> there. This is this is really important, and this this because I've been saying that the tactical obsession feeds the abstraction of the game, or it, it's. Um, or a certain kind of alienation. I think it's also a consequence of it. The, again, we're, we're looking at a, a circle, I think, because the, the reason that the this kind of analysis has become popular is to do with a mo- certain mode of consumption. Now, I never, at a match, hear people getting into the levels of almost perverse... Um, I wanted to say gynecological there, but you know, no, yeah, let's go for it. Gynecological. It's just just because the, the, you know it's it's the day after the um, the the most gynecologically important day in, in, um, in British history. In British history. The birth uh, of a future king for a country that probably won't exist in fifty years. <laughs> uh, okay, this kind of. Um, uh, ob- obstetrician's view of football has been utterly, you know, that that doesn't happen when you're at a game. You, you are aware of, e- even if you stand at pitch level right next to the pitch and, and therefore you're, all, you're almost inside the game, you are aware of certain things happening tactically and, and this increases the more and more often you go, but it's not the focus and it can't be the focus because you don't, even if you go to, say, the New Camp or, or St James's Park games where you will sit amazingly so high up in the stands that you literally cannot recognise any of the players, um, you still don't have that um, privileged access to the entire space of the pitch that you can get uh, through watching on a screen uh, and with replay functions as well. So I think that it's to do, A, with the fact that people have been consuming more and more often on television, but onto another one of those things we're kind of repeatedly interested in, I think it's to do with the fact that people often watch on, scr- um, on streams now, meaning that they're watching games from all around the world and, and often flicking between different yeah. streams um, and therefore having that uh, mode of comparison There's immediately There's no other available narrative available. Yeah. But the... Um, the only way to narrativise. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, one thing I thought was interesting was I, I don't often watch on streams, but I watched um, because I've been fascinated since I was in secondary school with the with the Balkans. I watched the Croatia Serbia game World Cup qualifier, I think, last year, and I think it was the first time they played each other in a competitive match. I don't know if that's right or not, but um, I think it was in in Zagreb, and I watched that because I wanted to see how uh, commentators, because there were British commentators commentators on it were responding to what was obviously a very politically tense game and we got such a weird focus on the tactics there again and I was thinking you know they were filling in the political aspects with some terrible cliches you know like oh this is you know <laughs> this is a full-blooded fiction and you're thinking well yeah you could say that but maybe there needs to be some kind of historical geopolitical fleshing out here um but again, the invitation was to think in terms of tactics, as, as though they're this thing which transcends economics and politics. And I think people are getting that that kind of falsely transcendental uh, perspective by watching on streams and, and on television. So it's a, mo- a question of the mode of consumption facilitating a, a kind of discussion rather than just a kind of discussion facilitating facilitating a mode of consumption. In your writing, you have used words like neoliberal and technocratic to describe uh, this fetish for tactics. Um, what What is neoliberal about it? Okay, so um, the way I'm framing neoliberal here is as, again, to quote or, or to um, sort of paraphrase Mark Fisher's argument about it in Capitalist Realism, which we've done a few times already, the notion that we've reached the end of history in the sense that there is no political ideology which can compete with free markets, 
free market capitalism. We, we've gone beyond even, you know, even Keynesianism has, has had its day and what, what we have now is, you know, actually the, there's nothing other than the free market. We just have to find ways of making that efficient, right? This is, I think, the, the thing that neoliberalism sells to us, that it is a perfectible political system, even if it hasn't been um, perfected yet because it still is burdened with the inefficiencies of, for example, social democracy. This is the big neoliberal story. This is big neoliberal And it has narrative. to be made efficient because there is no, alter mm -hmm. no alternative. Yeah, I mean, a any kind of sensible reading can see the contradictions in that. We, we, what, what maybe an increasing number of people are starting to realise is that the, um, the inefficiencies are not things that neoliberalism has inherited um, and will solve dialectically, but they are an inherent part of, of neoliberalism itself, that its inefficiencies are its problem rather than a problem that it will solve. They're its flaws rather than flaws that it will it will overcome. So it becomes, the, the, we get this narrative about efficiency, about this system being able to be refined and refined and refined until we reach this kind of, uh, this strange utopia of uh, self-sufficiency and um, doing it for oneself. Um, and, you know, there are huge ideological questions around that which we can't hope to solve on a, a football podcast but I do think that the way that tactics are talked about provides an interesting example of how this is being played out in football. Now it strikes me that the rise of tactical discussion to its current prominence has been exactly coterminous with the um, with the financial crisis. Now it, perhaps you're listening and you think this is terribly self-indulgent to begin making this analogy but <clears throat> We have this endless discussion about increasingly efficient systems within, within the current economic structures of the game, which don't challenge the econo current economic structures of the game. Um, now that, that fascinates me, it, and it reminds me of you know, what has happened in a number of European countries, and arguably in this country um, since 2008, since the, the initial banking crisis, when you've begun to get these kind of uh, what we've called technocratic governments, governments of, of economists, but neoliberal economists who are going to find ways of solving this this system. And at the same time, we've been getting an increasing number of football managers to come in, and they talk about the project, the project. They really like the project of um, of said owner, and their part in the project is not going to be to challenge any kind of um, any kind of economic uh, hegemony within the game, their part of the project is going to be to do the bit on the pitch in a way which is maximally efficient and they're going to do this by knowing their tactical, being absolutely up to date on the tactics book um, and also being able to combine that with an incredibly complex statistical understanding. So you've got your Michael Laudrup's don't you? Um, people who are uh, trying to find ways of m maximising the efficiency of, of the game on the pitch. You, you know, Michael Laudrup was the co-founder of a neoliberal economics think tank. I know. It's just this is the thing. There are so many connections there. Once you start to look, I mean, which which start to make the tactical thing look more and more ideological. Um, which is why I do think we're onto something with this. And if you want to kind of merge. Uh, merge terms, if you want to create the portmanteau term, surely what we're talking about is, is uh, some, something you might call kind of tactocratic thinking, a, ta a tactocratic form of rationalism. Now, for me, the great thing about football is that it, it does provide a, you know, it, it provide a space or is in fact characterised by the irrational. Um, but tactocratic thinking militates against that, it, it calls for the absolute rationalisation of the game. Um, which, to my mind, is uh, absolutely to its detriment. I can understand this uh, desire to rationalise football. I've done it myself before with youth football. You find yourself becoming this sort of tragic, stick-up-the-arse, uh, Richard Dawkins-esque figure, uh, seeking to free the great unwashed from the irrational uh, freers from the medieval superstition of football. Um, I should add the caveat that it's perhaps a blessing that these uh, mechanical minds are concentrating on tactics rather than sticking children through the conformity mincer. Uh, the tactics blog can do nothing like the harm efficiency obsessed youth football can. But three things knock me out of this rational football mindset. 
First, youth football is borderline child abuse on an industrial scale, something we'll come back to at a later episode. Secondly, I came to realise that football was a social experience, not a hermetically sealed end in itself, not a problem that must be solved. In essence, uh, it doesn't matter whether football is good or not. The sociability is the important thing. And thirdly, related to this, with the onset of the uh, financial crisis, I became more politicised. Or rather, I rekindled and redeveloped the rough politicisation football has already provided me with in my uh, teenage years. Now, to look at football's last 30 years of increased uh, privatisation, policing, and asociability, to look at this troika and merely talk about increasing the pitch level efficiency of the already powerful, be it through youth development or tactical efficiency, it's just so apolitical, hopeless and unimaginative. For the moderns, for the modern tactics aficionado, there is no alternative, but there are alternatives. Compare and contrast, for example, uh, Paul A exemplar, uh, tactics blogging with the, with the struggle against the Criminal Justice Act. It's, uh, come on people, what are you doing? For fuck's sake. Football has been buggered for three decades and you're wondering about fucking false nines. I think the first step to break away from this neoliberal football uh, maybe to step away from bloody efficiency. You're debauched. You're fucking debauched. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's that stepping away. And what, what, where does that stepping away begins? It involves people kind of letting go of um, letting go of the notion of efficiency because efficiency is what wins wins football matches for you or wins football competitions for you. Um, people. One of what an important thing that needs to happen is people need to become more circumspect about it in general, don't they? Um, and where does that begin? Does that involve people saying, "I don't want my team to win"? Now, of course, no one's going to say that. I don't. I don't want. Um, I don't particularly want uh, Dulwich Hamlet to lose the friendly we're going to tonight. But I do think that the obsession with with winning which is at the same time to me a kind of acquiescence to the current relationships of of production distribution and consumption in football is is the big problem it's yeah. it's the way that the kind of greed and commercialization of the game is played out at the level of the fan it's it's the it's ideology there isn't it it's it's the way in which we are we we become participants having a monopolization of success uh, which is the result of the um, desire for efficiency is um, the way the one way people can extract uh, money from football? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we said have we done the thing about football not not being capable of extracting surplus value before? Yeah. Um, As an industry, it fails. But uh, people manage to make money. Companies like uh, B Sky B, uh, individuals like the, the Glazers, um, manage to extract value. Uh, from the top level of the game mm -hmm. as it's currently structured and um, so all this efficiency beyond the to the detriment of the social relationship is the one way for people to make money out of football you know and that's why it's allowed to still exist okay and now now what I want to kind of play with is the idea that this kind of drive towards efficiency in tactics is is um, served by another kind of tactical discussion which I think is the more aesthetic um, affirmative celebratory discussion of tactics that we find in people like Jonathan Wilson. Now, now Wilson's really interesting book for me in this discussion is, is his uh, biography of Brian Clough. And Brian Clough is a figure I think is, is fascinating because to me he belongs in the same kind of category as John Lydon or Marky e. Smith. He's one of these kind of chippy liminal class individuals from from kind of British post-war social democratic history who um, okay. kind of refuse political systematization 
Sorry, we had a we had a non-head moment there. I think um, it's difficulty of uh, accommodating the noise of, of people having a good time into. <laughs> this is football. You're not meant to have a good yeah, time. Yeah, you're not meant to have a good good time. Um, but but Wilson's book about Brian Clough. Now Brian Clough is very very famous for you know in footballing circles for being a manager who seemed to refuse tactics on every level. Now his way of managing, it still seems to me, and Wilson was never able to kind of convince me otherwise. Clough's way of managing was being an incredibly good man man manager, um, a kind of carrot and stick man manager if you like, and, and he also wits very often or certainly for the most successful phase of his career with uh, Peter Taylor as co-manager and Taylor was also not a tactician Taylor's job was scouting um, and being able to find fantastic up and coming players or, or, or players who, who would help that team's dynamic um, for, for you know reasonably good prices um, now in Wilson's book on Clough he has to acknowledge that Clough was openly dismissive of tactical thinking now Clough, Clough said something about the um, the majority of people who talk about football tactics not knowing even they wouldn't even know how to win a game of dominoes down the pub um, he thought that it was a kind of armchair way of way of thinking about football and it, and it wasn't something that people within football um, had any great need for and, and he, you know he, he said that you know you put the, the players out there and, and you motivate them well enough Sim, you know, keep it simple. Put the ball on on the ground, um, pass, keep possession to a certain degree, and and that's the way to win a football match. You don't need to get over technical about it. Now, on one hand, that's kind of that can strike you, and I think it strikes Wilson as a kind of um, performative philistinism. I don't think Clough, um, I don't think Wilson believes Clough about that. I think in that book, he's always trying to work out how Clough was actually a systematizer. Um, but he never manages to get to it. He never manages to resolve this problem. No like, smoking gun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Clough must have had some sort of tactics because, I mean, he he sent defenders out uh, mm. and midfielders, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't um, a sort of 1850s public school free-for-all. Absolutely not, no. I mean, but it... it and, and that's where the the problem with my, my argument comes in. I mean, there were obviously some tactics there, but you could say the same thing about Alex Ferguson, who, again, is a manager who, um, for most of the time, is completely tactically inept, and yet is the most uh, successful modern British football manager. You know, he's a man-manager with... Um, Lots of money. Lots of money, yeah. A man manager with, with lots of money, but even when he didn't have lots of money, he was a man manager. Well, I think he always, at United, always did have um, a, a reasonable amount of money. Yeah, I, I was more thinking about Aberdeen. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But, um, and without spending a vast amount of money, he did manage to kind of disrupt the, the hierarchy in Scotland um, and even in, Last in person Europe. Probably ever to do it. Even, mm. even with Rangers' uh, current tribulations. Yeah, I would have would have thought so. Um, but but Ferguson, you know, there, there is a degree of philosophy about how the game should be played with him. You know, if you think about the best, most exciting United teams to watch, they they just uh, they counter attack, they charge forward. But it wasn't you know tactically coherent. I don't think, and and he never has been tactically coherent. Hence some of his failings in Europe and he's often had to get tacticians in as, as assistant managers um, but I don't think uh, Wilson is ever going to convince me that a great manager is a great tactician um, but that's the narrative I see him trying to build particularly in, in Inverting the Pyramid and, and the Clough book and now we have these managers who become cause celebs um, for, for the tactical analysts if you like so now I, I notice that Manchester City have got got, got um, Pellegrini in, we've seen um, the uh, Jurgen Klopp at, at Dortmund, um, uh, Bielsa, Marcelo Bielsa particularly, a few few managers in the 90s, Arrigo Saki. Um, Barcelona have just hired a, a student of Bielsa, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but these people who are going to create the new systems, who are always going to be kind of one step ahead of the game as is, um, and, and maximise efficiency. Now, you know, when we start ignoring the socio-economics of the game in order to look at these individuals who are doing the most, you know, creating these aesthetically pure footballing systems, we've got a problem. 
got a problem because we get blinded by the um, get blinded by the aesthetic, don't we? So on one hand, it's a really complex relationship, but we have the the aesthetics of tactics and and the kind of rationality of tactics, which go they go and sit together and they kind of happily play together, um, serve each other. Whereas on the other hand, we have a more kind of uh, aggressive socioeconomic critique, um, which is what's not, I think, being made at the moment. Is there a role uh, that championship manager, as it's now known, football manager, the football management simulation game plays in this? Mm, no, I think that's that's interesting. And I, I think that our our generation of fans are kind of one of the. We, we can still think back to the very early examples of the game. That you know we. We might be the last generation who came into playing Championship Manager with the very primitive editions. If you remember the, um, do you remember the old 1992, 93 editions? Never. I only played one of them, which mm. was in 0102. But it, even early on, early on in them, there was a kind of quite a large degree of tactical control offered to the player by by the interface. Um, and it was doing that in a way that other simulators weren't capable of doing. Its tactics engine was always one of the most uh, kind of ahead of the game things about it. And that got people, I suspect, thinking about tactics at, um, at a very young age and thinking about the game again as this thing that happens on that green rectangle. Um, and every iteration of the game has allowed for a greater degree of tactical control, I think, to the point at which you can really micromanage now, um, which is, I suppose, well, I mean, the question of how much responsibility is afforded to the player in a in a computer game, I think, is a very wide-ranging thing for for a, a more complex discussion of gaming in general. Um, but in the case of Championship Manager, I think it's very important because the more control you are afforded as a player, the more you start to ignore the kind of wider contingencies of football and the more so, you start to attribute that that kind of ignoring to what's the um, man management engine like the, the man management engine has become increasingly sophisticated but it can't I mean you hit an artificial intelligence remember, button there I, in the end the, don't you the one I played 12 years ago um, had absolutely no provision for man management I don't think you could even sort of say what your half time team talk was like mm -hmm. um it was pure tactics and buying players. Well, I'm pretty sure that now you have all kinds of um, opportunities to bollock players or to try and uh, to try and uh, make them feel a little bit bit better about themselves when they're they're having their Berbatov moments. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a significant aspect of it as well. But the, the, again, the thing that Championship Manager can't accommodate is uh, socio-economic contingency. I don't think there is a financial crisis. Um, Wild card that happens in in well, even the latest the football thing, manager. There's um, championship manager has no historical development in its game. You can play the game for 50 years, yeah. and the world is still the same. Yes, the yeah, countries are absolutely. still the same. Yeah. Football hasn't changed one bit, and you know I think one thing we're both acutely aware of is that football always changes. Um, football will not stay as it is. Uh, this is why we bang on. One of the reasons we bang on about uh, the, the worrying efficiency of tactics, because what you, you, what we're on course for one competitive team in the whole world. Mm -hmm. Football won't even have the sense to stop at having two. Yeah, <laughs> kind of en endless kind of refining towards uh, uh, towards some kind of Hegelian synthesis, um, which is also amazingly un-Hegelian when you think about it. Um, I promise not to use big words to a friend in, in this episode. Uh, I've failed on that count. Um, I love the, the point about Championship Manager having no historical development either of the game or outside the game. It, mm. I, yeah, there's nothing about but the, I mean, fans. You, you get takeovers right. now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you get takeovers, do you? Is there like yeah. a, so is there like a random uh, oil-rich shake takeover of... Lincoln City or whatever. So, something like that. I think I think this kind of thing can happen, but it, but it's seen as a universally good thing. I mean, what you won't have in Championship Manager is breakaway clubs. I think that kind ah. of thing. I don't think you get fan boycotts in Championship Manager because because they don't like the new owner and the new owners come in and um, done certain things to the kit, which we're not going to talk about in this episode. <laughs> um, but um, 
there is no kind of political agency in that game. And mm -hmm. okay, you know, do we? Is it reasonable to expect that? No, I mean it's probably not, is it? But the, the vast. I think well, if, if video games want to be considered as uh, further cultural forms, and mm. some of them do manage this, um, then they do need to sort of represent important things in society. Um, but I suppose what you get get there with uh, with games is often you get the absurd absurdist leap from from kind of no uh, no contingency to. Um, to implausible contingency. I don't know if you you used to play SimCity at all when you were a kid. No, um, I'm aware of it. But I, I remember that the options seem to go: nothing bad is happening, or Godzilla has invaded your city. You know, <laughs> so maybe Championship Manager will in, include some kind of alien invasion option, but they won't have a kind of uh, stock exchange crisis option. They won't. You know, uh, can can you manage a team in the Egyptian League and Championship Manager, for example? Are we going to have our? Oh no, none of, none of your fans are here today because the ultras are all off in Tahrir Square. You know. <laughs> um, it's easier to imagine Godzilla attacking than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> what about people who, who just, you know, love uh, problem solving, they, they love the tactical side of the game, um, you know, they like chess, um, they're, they're not interested in, in the social aspect of, of um, okay. What do we do about these fuckers? <laughs> I, I I like chess. I'm, I'm not particularly good at chess, uh, but I do like playing it. Um, but I don't think that a chess player is necessarily somebody who has abstracted chess from um, from its social conditions all the time. I think there are a lot of chess is a tactical game. Football is a social experience. Mm, but I, I think that in the kind of seeming absolute tacticality of chess, people start to do a kind of backwards, produce a kind of backwards metaphor and start thinking about how chess, the tactics of chess, are like the tactics of life. Now, you know, I don't necessarily like the analogies they come out with. They seem to be kind of unnecessarily focused on competitiveness, for example. They seem to um, offer a vision of uh, a very... Um, I suppose bad Darwinian vision of human experience, which says it's all about competition. Uh, not massively keen on that, but I do think that chess players often do attempt to at least think out the relationship between the, the tactics of the game and uh, lived social experience. Um, but I, it's it's hard to say, isn't it? Because I do I I have friends whose interest in the game is extremely tactically focused, and I don't want to I don't want to take that kind of pleasure away from people. I do to to a degree there is a kind of real aesthetic interest around it all. Um, that's it, in a better world. That's an enriching of the game rather than a way of removing the game from its uh, its kind of social base. My problem is that people aren't acknowledging what the tactical discussion is being manipulated to do yeah if you see what I mean and uh, yeah you know I, I I'm not gonna say I have not sat there in the pub and and uh, or, or met people on a train or, or talked to people at work in fact about uh, you know these kind of interesting developments that, that are happening and there are un unquestionably some some really intriguing things that are happening in in tactical uh, thought at the moment um, it, it's weird this kind of accelerated tactical development in fact where it seems to be changing year on year rather than dec decade on decade um, and occasionally at my more atavistic I, I start to think well come on English football can you not, uh, can you not develop this um, brilliantly sophisticated um, way of playing that, that would kind of uh, be up there with what's happened in Spain and Germany recently. So it's it's not kind of completely anti-tactics way of thinking. It's just what I'm calling for. I think is a is a more adequate way of framing the tactical discussion. Um, what do you think? Well, I think um, I don't have a problem with people having uh, any sort of eccentric interest in football. Um, mm. We all devote these surrogate activities to um, uh, enrich enriched experience and express ourselves. Um, I've got no problem with someone sat away in the stands making mm. 
notes. Yeah, I like uh, that person in a way. But, um, and it's no different to my own eccentricities, such as painting uh, absurdly large uh, Dalek Hamlet banners. Um, but it's it's when it's institutional and it's when it's um, sort of uh, a sort of mirror of the um, the sort of current form of capitalistic football. That's when it becomes mm-hmm. a, a worry. And um, if I was if I was tactically interested, um, or indeed as I was with youth football, and I begin to sort of realise that it's it's sort of creepily in contradiction with my sort of politics. Yeah. Then, I mean, in a way, I feel sorry for people who do have a sort of genuine nerdy interest in um, in the the tactical or, or the statistical side, um, because. I mean, some of them must get to the point where they realise you know, it's removing something from football. Yeah, you see, what I, I think is that it is removing something fo- from football, but they see it as a way of expanding the breadth of football for them. It's a kind of childish fantasy of um, infinity, and I'm not saying that we are not completely subject uh, to this ourselves, but I think the there is sublime possibility in the infinite number of combinations that, that tactics affords. You know, I, I don't know if you ever had this thing as a child where you would, um, you'd be playing a game and you'd be trying to set the limits of the imaginary world, but you always wanted to leave an infinite amount of space in it for, for further development. Um, this will sound rather abstract and uh, something that maybe when we finally get around to doing the imaginary football episode mm. we, can, we can talk about a bit. Um, but I think some of these people are always thinking in terms of, of novelty, this kind of, which is a kind of capitalistic obsession in itself, the, the, uh, the notion sort of, of infinite novelty. A sort of utopian idea that, um, you know, tactics can bring the new thing in football, mm-hmm. um, which I can understand. I can understand why there's a need for that because, I mean, football's quite, uncom- well, very uncompetitive now. It's very uh, closed off in terms of who can win. Mm. But there's always a chance that some... Uh, seemingly implausible new um, uh, tactical revolution will come about and anyone could win with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, I mean, mean, Wilson briefly mentions this in Inverting the Pyramid because of of mass communication technology, because of this industrial scale of scouting in football. These things... I realised, you know, within a matter of months or, mm-hmm. or weeks, even rather than being able to develop for, for years. Yeah, yeah. So there's a kind of a, again, it's the, this accelerated development, um, which is absolutely a um, a faculty, I suppose, of modern modern communications tech technologies. Although maybe Wilson is not. Um, Is, is slightly reductive there because if this were true then there would be an absolute homogenization of style and we know that this hasn't happened in, even when there has been homogenization of style in other um, social fields hasn't there so there is uh, less homogenization of style between different European countries in terms of um, in terms of football than there is in terms of television broadcasting I think so there are, you know, difference. Mm. Well, I mean, I don't know. It might be a contentious claim. Perhaps one last comment for me about Wilson. Um, he, in his book, the the first half of it is this sort of wonderful uh, pre-war, slightly post-war development of regional football cultures mm-hmm. where the tactics uh, as much of as the fandom as much as the style of, of play and the technical ability are all very nuanced and uh, regional um, and in some cases fascinatingly inefficient mm-hmm. like the Argentinian football culture um, where you'd have cases of um, players refusing to pass one another because they wanted to express themselves. Um, really quite unimaginable stuff nowadays. Um, and Wilson 
just sort of kind of views it um, as kind of quaint and this sort of uh, hangover from a, a inefficient time and it had to change mm. um, and I can understand why it changed and I can understand why it's um, a bit the, the fall of it not changing is perhaps even implausible but to not realise there's a slightly unhappy um, situation here where it's a case of cultures being homogenised mm. um, uh, Simon Cooper's book Soconomics uh, bangs on a lot about Western European knowledge networks and how important these are to football and mm. um, it's basically a celebration of cultural uh, globalisation um, but, but from a dominant hegemonic perspective and um, that's what's got that, you know that's what's going on with football and I think it's strange to not think that's a little bit sad or, or that's like like something has been lost. Okay, right. I, I think what I would say here is is this is the defence of Wilson, if you like, where, or, or where I um, hold him in quite high regard because Wilson is quite irrational about being a rationalist. I think Wil Wilson, I think, is um, is struggles to rid himself of a kind of deep romanticism for certain cultural moments. Um, now he, he talks about things having to change, move towards this greater efficiency, but I think that for him that's a kind of uh, modernist commitment rather than a kind of neoliberal um, mm -hmm. celebration of rationalisation. That's why I keep on talking about Wilson within the sphere of aesthetics, if you like. Now if you look at, at the, the moment that Wilson has an enormous amount of nostalgia for and quite a lot of his writing is for that kind of... Um, uh, Belle Epoque or, or post World War One as well, kind of um, Central European cafe oh, culture. For, for yeah. him, kind of the European tactical modernism is coming out of Vienna at the same time as a lot of European literary, psychoanalytic, and musical modernism is coming out of Vienna. Um, implicitly, he he wants to compare um, compare the tactical modernizers from around World War One and and the nineteen twenties who in Austria and Hungary. Implicitly, he seems to be comparing them to Freud or to uh, or to Schoenberg or to, uh, to Thomas Mann. These kind of people who are all all doing kind of uh, very odd odd and quite austere things at times in in Central Europe. Uh, now Wilson. I think it's hugely romantic about that moment and maybe sees the tactical developments that are happening now in that lineage um, whereas some of his followers have maybe kind of um, managed to evacuate their own writing of that romanticism and turn it into a pure pure kind of obsession with efficiency yeah. um, so I, I like Wilson on those grounds he, he sort of he, he's an idealist about it um, and you just wonder, can that idealism be, be kind of reframed somehow? Um, but when, uh, when Wilson writes his great kind of historic, historical materialist book on, on football, when he brings Walter Benjamin or something, and I, I'm going to really start warming to his work again. But as it stands at the moment, I think that he's kind of pushed this project too far. But it's his own, his own romanticism, um, uh, or his, his own romance with, with that original cultural moment. Uh, in the early 20th century, which is driving him on still. Anyway, so uh, sorry, we've probably um, probably uh, tacticked ourselves out, and we're going to go and see some deeply untactical football tonight. The best kind. Um, we have a banner to finish. Yep. Join us next week, where we'll be. Um, we hope we will be recording the show trial of Jonathan Bilson. I'll <laughs> uh, uh, see you. In a couple of weeks, I've been Robert Malloy Vaughan. And I've been Joe Kennedy, and we have been... Sat in a 1-1 formation. <laughs> Goodbye.